Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And we also have, again, Haley Knopf. Hello. Nice to have you guys here. What's going on with everybody today? Well, uh, we're always uh, on trend. We're right in the zeitgeist. We're 10 days out from a New York Times profile, I think, maybe, maybe a little more than that. And I think it's time the people are demanding the pro se weigh in on the phenomenon that is Wordle. I'm uh, so ready to talk about this. Everybody's playing it. Great word game. Except Everyone for Haley Knopf. Except me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to intrigue you enough, Haley, that you'll, you'll test it out. I mean, it's perfect for, if for anybody who hasn't played this word game, it's literally you just have to guess the correct five-letter word. You have six tries. Um, yes. So that's the basics of it. But it's perfect for you know, journalists, we're word nerds. That's yes. what we're into. And it's also like sort of highly shareable. Now, Haley, you haven't played the game, but one of the things I admire about you is that you are quite online. So you've at least gotten sort of like reverberations of the Wordle phenomenon, right? Yeah. Well, that's why I'm kind of ashamed that I haven't been playing because it is all over my Twitter feed. Yeah. Which is where I tragically spend a lot of my time. <laughs> no, that's why that's why we keep having you back. I mean, you fit right in in that regard. I bring it up in the context of our show here to say that uh, I quite enjoy the game and uh, I do have kind of a bank of legal words that I kind of start my wordles with. I can't wait to hear these because you said that earlier but didn't spoil which words they are. Yeah. And I immediately was like, well, you wouldn't want to use the word legal because it doubles the L, so that's not useful. So no. I, I couldn't figure out what you're using. You do, uh, I mean, judge is good, crime oh, sure. is good, plead is good. Ooh, uh, plead, also, nice. Sometimes, check this out, I use the word prose, which is not a legal word, oh. but it is a uh, smashing together of the actual spelling of pro se. Uh, nice. Not the way we do it, the actual Latin. Uh, so I don't know. I just noodle around with it sometimes. I love Wordle. I love posting my Wordles, even though that's kind of gotten a little gauche over the last couple of days. <laughs> Controversial take. I actually, I think the game is really fun. I think it's too easy. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Well, what what did you get today's in, Amber? Uh, I can't remember if it was today's or yesterday's, but one of them I got in like two words and I was like, that's just not right. But I, it's not too easy. Like sometimes it does take me the whole like six tries, but I have, I think only once not gotten the word. So that's what I mean by too easy. Like it's always solvable, I feel like. Well, yeah, that, that I mean, it is literally solvable. That's why it's a puzzle. But in any case, uh, Haley, any last words on, on Wordle? Well, maybe this is going too far, but <laughs> Amber, you mentioned that legal would be bad because there are two L's. Do you want words that don't repeat letters? Yes, your first try For your first try not to guess. repeat letters yeah. because it'll tell you which ones are either in the correct spot or just in the word somewhere. So if you repeat a letter, it's like kind of wasting that info, that intel. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. I will uh, now. I started us down this, but I have to throw my body in front of in front of remedial wordle theory us. here, because uh, we do have a tremendous amount of news, including uh, a huge supreme, a huge pair of Supreme Court decisions that just came down. What are we going to talk about today? Yeah, here? today is Thursday that we're recording this, and we just before we started recording got word from the Supreme Court on vaccine mandates. They were just argued at the court on Friday. We expected this to be a really quick turnaround because that's such a pressing issue about whether or not employers would be required to have their employees vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, we found out an answer to that, that the, a broad vaccine mandate was struck down by the court. 
and one that applies just to healthcare workers was upheld. So we're going to break all that down later in the show. Yes, obviously, the emergent nature of these cases drew a lot of eyeballs. And I look forward to talking, uh, sort of breaking it down with you guys. We're doing all hosts this week, by the way. So stay tuned for talk about the vaccine mandates. We do have some news to get to before that. Uh, I'll get us started because um, I got an interesting case we can talk about that's going on uh, down in Texas right now. And it involves the government pursuing a, get this, $2 billion tax fraud case against one guy, a former software CEO. And that would be perfect pro se fodder just on its own, considering the sort of massive number at play there. But the case that we're talking about this week um, has another layer of intrigue, which is that the entire case is now kind of uh, wound up in this dispute over whether the CEO that's under indictment has dementia. The, that question has loomed over this case for a couple of years now with uh, the guy's defense lawyers claiming that he's not fit to stand trial and the government uh, basically accusing him of faking having dementia to escape justice. And that really boiled over in a series of briefs that were filed late last week. And it seemed like a pretty interesting case for us to break down. Yeah, it, it's sort of sad facts either way you go. Either someone's lying about dementia or they actually have it. Um, <laughs> right, yes. The, the one light here is that I would aspire to owe $2 billion in a <laughs> tax bill. That's such a big number. You must have earned a lot. But yeah, let's break down sort of what we got in the back and forth of the briefs. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. If someone's accusing you of hiding it, uh, that means maybe you have it. So I don't know. At the center of the case um, is a man who's named uh, Robert Brockman, and he is the former CEO of a software company called Reynolds and Reynolds. And the feds have been uh, accusing him of hiding more than $2 billion from the IRS in various offshore accounts and entities. Prosecutors have uh, said that this case they've brought is the largest ever tax fraud case that has been brought against one person. And they basically allege this extremely complex scheme that ran its course over um, about 20 years, whereby Brockman basically concealed his control over various offshore companies and trusts, filed false tax returns, failed to submit proper paperwork. There were code words, encrypted emails, a really sort of intricate scheme is what they are alleging here. Um, there's a 39-count indictment against Brockman that includes tax evasion and sort of manipulating his company's debt securities to defraud investors, the works, really, in terms of financial crimes. But beyond all that financial crimes intrigue, the question of Brockman's mental competency is now really dominating the proceedings. And lawyers um, have been sparring over basically the, the truth and extent of his, uh, of his dementia diagnosis. Yeah, that seems really, really touchy. Yeah. What has this fight looked like? So it's they're really getting their hands dirty on this because they held a competency hearing back in November, which is a hearing like is what it sounds like devoted entirely to the question of whether he is competent to, to stand trial. And that lasted eight full days, just the hearing on competency. And that had testimony from about, about nine physicians, other experts, and um, both sides uh, put a bow on those arguments, filing sort of summary briefs last week. Um, I wanted to talk about the government's timeline of like sort of how they were pursuing these charges against Brockman is pretty important. They told the court that Brockman was on a fishing trip in Alaska when he got word of 
authorities raiding the home of an alleged co-conspirator in September of 2018. That's when they said that he got word of that. The next day after that, Brockman sent an email to his doctor. And within six months of him sending that email, he was diagnosed with dementia. This is according to government court filings. Now, after that, prosecutors say that Brockman effectively began leading what they call a double life, where he was misleading doctors and lawyers about his mental fitness, you know, pretending he had dementia, while he was continuing to run the company. And he stayed on as the CEO until November of 2020. Here was a lengthy quote from one of their filings. This charade succeeded temporarily. He convinced his doctors and lawyers of his impairment and convinced them to write a letter to the government urging that he not be indicted. Ultimately, however, this double life represents some of the strongest evidence that defendant is not who he says he is and instead has been faking his illness to evade responsibility for his crimes. So um, as I read this, this is basically the government invoking the liar, liar, pants on fire doctrine uh, when uh, it comes well to Brockman's that dementia. That's a technical term. Sure. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, that's I mean, and that is sort of their side of it. They are saying you were saying one thing and doing another, and that doesn't quite jibe uh, with our very high stakes case here. Yeah, I mean, liar, liar, pants on fire can only be responded to with a some kind of no way Jose or something. I'm um, rubber in your glue. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. corollary. Yes. I imagine that's what Brockman's attorney said, right? <laughs> uh, not <laughs> not quite that. I don't mean to be so glib about it, but um, Brockman's attorneys basically accused the government of kind of honing in on this narrative of the timeline of him communicating with his doctors and focusing too narrowly about uh, on the actions around the time of his initial diagnosis and just kind of gliding past the fact that his condition has deteriorated in the years since then and that he cannot stand trial and they have, you know, voluminous expert evidence from doctors uh, or uh, uh, expert testimony rather from doctors attesting to that. And they have cited things like neuroimaging studies, neuropsychological tests, bouts of delirium, uh, again, testimonials from uh, Brockman's doctors, caregivers, his lawyers at the time, and other experts. And they've basically said that the government has kind of honed in on this narrative and they have not taken the ensuing evidence in good faith. Here was a lengthy quote from their missive here. Rather than assemble a team of experts that possessed the appropriate expertise to objectively analyze the evidence concerning Mr. Brockman's current cognitive abilities, the government attempts to shoehorn the record into its predetermined conclusion that it has rigidly adhered to for the last 13 months. From at least December 2020, despite notice from the defense eight months earlier and without consulting a single doctor who had examined Mr. Brockman, the government adopted a strategy to argue that Mr. Brockman began malingering in September of 2018. So they're saying like, you are completely ignoring all the evidence we're putting on record and just kind of wedging this into what you're trying to say here. So, Amber, you mentioned this during the production meeting, but this reminds me a lot of the Girardi case. Thank you for bringing which, it up, Haley. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, all things do come back to Tom Girardi, I <laughs> they <firmly> do. believe. <laughs> for, for anybody who's not as into reality TV and Bravo as we are. Yeah, in his instance, he was accused of a lot of wrongdoing as an attorney. And then um, at a later point, as things were progressing, yeah. he too asserted via his own attorney uh, and his brother both said he has dementia. So, you know, whether that's true or not is unclear, but there was a lot of skepticism mm -hmm. in, in sort of court watchers about that. So 
it, it might be kind of rare that this happens, but it does come up occasionally. And when people assert a cognitive decline in the middle of big legal trouble, it raises my eyebrows. Yeah. And um, this is this certainly qualifies as big legal trouble, because in case you forgot at the top of the segment, uh, there is the question of two billion dollars worth of hidden money from the IRS in the mix here. So, I mean, the government would probably vigorously prosecute any tax fraud case as they're obligated to do. But the stakes are incredibly high here for very obvious reasons. Um, So there's a lot hinging here on whose experts the judge will trust more. Um, The competency question for Brockman has now been pretty exhaustively briefed, and uh, we're going to await word from the judge to see what the court thinks and uh, whether the trial, whether a trial will will go forward. So uh, stay tuned for that. Well, switching gears here, the Federal Trade Commission got a big win this week in its antitrust case against Facebook. Um, That's a pretty big case. So the agency is accusing Facebook of illegally maintaining a monopoly over personal social networking. Um, And Facebook has predictably been fighting these allegations tooth and nail. But a D.C. federal judge shut down Facebook's latest dismissal bid on Tuesday. That's pretty big for the FTC because it saw its first version of the complaint tossed earlier this year mm-hmm. with the judge finding that it lacked specifics about the markets Facebook allegedly has a monopoly over. But it's an interesting case for a lot of reasons, in particular because initially 48 attorneys general also sued Facebook. Um, and that suit was thrown out with leave without leave to amend. But the decision is under appeal. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, but on top of that, The FTC is pointing to acquisitions Facebook made years ago, Instagram and WhatsApp. Uh, And those mergers happened way back in 2012 and 2014, respectively. So, Haley, I'm always uh, I feel like Facebook is always in some sort of trouble and I lose track of like, yeah, who's (laughs) mad at it about what? Yeah, you just rattled off like a couple of different things. Yeah, uh, I felt like I, I was remembering some of these. I know there was a lot of questions around the acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. So it's ringing some bells, but I think I'm going to need a reset here. So why don't you give us that? What is the FTC upset about here? Yeah, basically, the agency says these acquisitions were problematic because the quality and innovation of social networking has decreased since then. Um, And consumers also allegedly have fewer choices in that space. I think that's pretty hilarious to say that the quality of of innovation in social networking has gone down. How can they even tell? Well, that's yeah. I mean, that (laughs) is like an actual like antitrust doctrine thing about like, okay, if other things exist on the market, can you really have a monopoly? But the question of quality like is an actual like legal sort of doctrine. But like you say, Amber, it is funny to try and think about a judge or some adjudicative body trying to say like, uh, I I liked when social networks were new and exciting. This stuff is all <laughs> Don't you remember over. Friendster? Pablum. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Haley. What, um, what, what, what else is going on here? Yeah. So according to the complaint, Facebook has at least a 70% share of the personal social networking market based on average daily users a 65% share based on average monthly users, and at least 80% based on the time consumers spend using its services. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have an, uh, a 45-minute podcast to discuss like Facebook's dominance in this area, but it is a question of what constitutes a monopoly. That's kind of the thrust of um, antitrust cases. Are they saying like, hey, 
sorry we're so awesome at this or like what uh what are they how have they responded yeah so facebook has said the ftc's claims are backed by nothing more than quote in opposite statistics and admitted assumptions to dress up conclusory speculation Facebook argued that the FTC has no plausible factual support for its core claim that Facebook has the power to raise prices or restrict output in the market. Okay. And and here's a quote from uh, one of their most recent filings. After an exhaustive pre-filing investigation and examination of commercial data sources, the FTC has no measure of or means of measuring how much time people spend on Facebook or on any other service in activities that constitute personal social networking services, which I, that's maybe good. I don't want people measuring how much time I spend on, <laughs> I already on any of these called things. out by my phone when it tells me how long I'm on social media. So yeah, I don't want anybody else measuring it either. Mm. Yeah. And so Facebook also took issue with the market described in the complaint, calling it um, artificial and never before recognized. Okay. So you did lay out that the DC federal court didn't really by that. What what did they have to say? No, yeah, they were they were not convinced. US District Judge James E. Bosberg said the FTC's updated case is far more robust and detailed, particularly when it came to outlining that market. And the judge found that the FTC had plausibly claimed that Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp could potentially constitute anti-competitive activity. Still, the judge didn't side with the government on everything. He did throw out the FTC's claims that Facebook attracted third-party developers to its platform only to cut off access to those perceived as a competitive threat. And the judge chose not to weigh in on the FTC's likelihood of success. He said, quote, ultimately, whether the FTC will be able to prove its case and prevail at summary judgment and trial is anyone's guess. Well, that's what you want to hear. There's still just a lot going on in this This case. guy, This guy can leave us hanging, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so Facebook now has until the end of the month to uh, answer the amended complaint. But that's, that's where we're at now. Yeah, still lots to watch on that one. Haley, thanks for bringing it. For our main story this week, guys, we've got a huge one out of the U.S. Supreme Court. The court blocked President Biden's vaccine um, rule for large employers, but did allow a separate rule applying to healthcare workers to stand. And I wanted us to just break it all down because this literally happened right before we started recording. So hot off the presses. Once again, the justices give no quarter to pro se. I don't know what we have to. We have to write a letter or something. We got a nice show planned out. And then and then down come the vaccine rule uh, opinions. If we if we wrote a letter about it, we'd have to put it in the right format and font to make sure it was sent over in the proper way. Just a lot of headaches to get them on board with our schedule. I mean, we got we we, we have a lawyer on staff somewhere. We can, we can figure <laughs> that out anyway. OK, this is these are hugely important cases. And there was sort of more than one rule at play here. Let's let's reacquaint the people with the actual vaccine rules that were under scrutiny here. What was uh, what was that all about? Yeah, we did have Vin Guerrieri on back in November. He's our uh, employment expert, and he came on to talk about when we got sort of the fleshed out version of these rules and mm -hmm. broke it all down. If people want to go back and listen to sort of more nuance. 
But here's the top line to remind people of what was going on here. There are two emergency rules that were issued, like I said, in tandem in November. One that the Supreme Court struck down is a vaccine or testing regulation. That's by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It's the kind of rule OSHA said it's allowed to issue to address, um, quote, grave danger in the workplace and to do that without first getting like notice and comment public mm-hmm. feedback. Under that rule, businesses with at least 100 employees would have been required to adopt a vaccine mandate or to have workers submit to weekly tests. It was going to have really just sweeping implications for the U.S. workforce because it would have covered 84 million workers approximately. The other rule, which was a little more modest, it's still standing. It's a bit stricter, too. It's uh, issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That rule requires healthcare workers at hospitals, nursing homes, and a bunch of other facilities that receive federal funds to be fully vaccinated. There's no weekly testing option here, like under that broader OSHA rule. This one would cover an estimated 17 million workers. Challenges to both these rules got fast-tracked to the Supreme Court because obviously they did. We're in the middle of an Omicron surge and time is of the essence here. Mm-hmm. Um, oral arguments were held just last week on Friday. So pretty quick turnaround from the court. So what did the justices say in their ruling? Yeah, to, to be clear on this, these were per curiam orders. So they're the ones that aren't penned by a particular justice just issued on behalf of the court. But we do have some vote breakdowns that are kind of interesting. The vote in the employer rule, the one that was the broader OSHA one, was Mm -hmm. six to three with the liberal justices being the dissenting members there. The vote in the healthcare case was five to four. So that one had Chief Justice John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joining the liberal justices to form a majority and uphold that rule. Here's what they had to say about the broader rule. Although Congress has indisputably given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, it has not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly. Requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers with more than 100 employees certainly falls in the latter category. So basically they said, you know, OSHA can't do this. It's it's too broad a rule. Yeah, these rulings are just mere hours old, but the, the sort of analysis here is that they are sort of drawing lines between when COVID becomes an occupational danger because they the, the majority anyway seems to read it as like it's a danger everywhere you go uh, for all of us. So they don't read it as as being uh, specifically related to your job, which is um, obviously a, a, a pretty narrow reading. But I think that that gets to the heart of why they ruled the way they did. Yeah, it really does. And I'd actually just like to talk a few highlights on that bit. In rejecting that large employer rule, they the majority basically said the risk associated with COVID, of course, crop up at work, but it's not occupational that this is a hazard. It's just a hazard. So this is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, at the risk of belaboring some quotes here, they are pretty striking. So let me let me give you one more. COVID-19 can and does spread at home in schools during sporting events and everywhere else that people gather. That kind of universal risk is no different from the day-to-day dangers that all face from crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. Permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. Yeah. So they're just like, yeah, this is a problem, but it's a life problem, not necessarily a work problem. 
And then, of course, we also had the CMS rule, which is, like you say, more narrowly tailored to cover only healthcare workers. That was upheld. What did they say in that opinion? So the difference there is that they said the agency acted within the authority granted to it by Congress when it issued that rule. For that one, they said this. The challenges posed by a global pandemic do not allow a federal agency to exercise power that Congress has not conferred upon it. At the same time, such unprecedented circumstances provide no grounds for limiting the exercise of authorities the agency has long been recognized to have. So they're like, yeah, this pandemic is really weird. We can't expand what the agency can do, but we're not expanding here. The agency could always issue rules like this about healthcare workers. So for that one, that's how they justified upholding it. So there were some notable dissents as well. What was outlined in those? Yeah, I mean, I haven't dug in as much as I think we will over the coming days since this is so fresh. But I will say that the um, liberal bloc, so that's Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, they were really unhappy about the OSHA rule, the broad one that would have applied to a bunch of employers um, getting knocked down. They focused on how the decision would basically hinder the federal government's ability to address what they called an unparalleled threat that COVID poses to American workers. Those justices said this in dissent. Acting outside of its competence and without legal basis, the court displaces the judgments of the government officials given the responsibility to respond to workplace health emergencies. So they really took issue with the idea that the justices are making decisions that they're not qualified to do, that this should have been left to the people in the government that look at hazards that happen in the workplace and decide how to address them. So these were emergent cases. I don't think we we certainly don't need to belabor that anymore. This is uh, we're in the middle of a surge, all of that. Um, Now it is settled, um, at least as an initial question before the Supreme Court. What have the reactions been so far? Yeah, I mean, nothing that's going to shock anybody here too much. But I just did want to do a few beats on how the Biden administration and President Biden himself have talked about this. In the lead up to these cases, The administration estimated that the OSHA rule would cause 22 million people to get vaccinated and would have therefore prevented an estimated 250,000 hospitalizations. So you can see why they felt like they had a compelling incentive to do this. And now that's not happening while we're in the middle of the Omicron surge, which is still ongoing across the nation. Um, So President Biden wasn't happy that this got struck down. Flip side, of course, he was pleased that at least one of these survived and the healthcare worker rule can move forward. One last thing that went on with the president today is that he just encouraged employers, you know, whether or not this is an actual federal rule, to just decide to put requirements in place of their own choosing for their workforce to try to keep workers safe. You know, companies can still do that. They can request that workers be vaccinated. So that's something the Biden administration is pushing on now that their rule has been knocked down by the high court. show is something offbeat. And boy, oh boy, Haley, you wrote a great story this week that I can't wait to talk about. Yeah. At the risk of uh, giving our listeners whiplash, jumping from vaccines to uh, (laughs) Pokemon, you likely saw this story making the rounds on the internet. Um, But I had the esteemed privilege of writing about a pair of LAPD officers 
who were fired for playing Pokemon Go, not only while on duty, but when they were actively being asked to respond to a robbery. Pokemon go to the unemployment line uh, is what it sounds like happened to them. Uh, oh, boy. But uh, I mean, Pokemon Go is like such a specific moment in time. I like to think that in maybe in five years time, we talk about cops who didn't respond to a call because they were playing Wordle, uh, you know, to put a little <laughs> sure. to bring us full circle. But uh, what what went on here? Yeah. So in the officer's defense, the incident did happen in April 2017, which was the height of the Pokemon Go craze. Yes. Yeah. So the officers sued over their termination and it made its way up to a California appellate court, which issued an order last Friday, basically agreeing with the city that the cops should have been fired. Um, I don't know. Did you guys play Pokemon Go back in the day? I did not. I mean, I feel like I still feel like I understand it because you kind of couldn't avoid it at that time. It was just sort of everywhere. What about you, Alex? I was I was Pokemon going all over the place. It was a great <laughs> like summer of 2016. I just I have such specific. I didn't do it. I did it for like maybe a period of like a couple of weeks. I wasn't like a real really insane like like committed uh, player, but it was just a it was a great way to like sort of get out and like wander around like that. Like I, I used it as a pretense for just like walking around the neighborhood. So it was like more casual. But yes, um, I have fond memories of the game. So the cops here were catching Pokemon, not catching robbers. How did we get to something <laughs> so like dire? Yeah. So what went down was the cops were chilling in their squad car near the Crenshaw Mall in southwest Los Angeles. And they heard a call for a robbery at the mall's Macy's come across the radio. And they said, quote, screw it, according to the decision. Um, <laughs> and they decided against going because they didn't want to help the commanding officer who had asked for help. That was actually I... <laughs> the reason. They weren't just blowing it off for Pokemon initially, <laughs> but it devolved, of course. I didn't uh, when I when I was reading your notes here. I didn't know if screw it was like you were editorializing. It's very funny that they <laughs> literally said that on a radio or something. <laughs> oh yeah, well they just said it to each other in the car. I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, but uh, right, like police have those um, car camera things, so that captured everything, right? Yes, yeah. So about five minutes after they decided not to go to the robbery, um, Officer Eric Mitchell told Officer Louis Lozano that a Snorlax had, quote, just popped up at 46th Street and Limart Boulevard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we picked up a Charizard on a 1089. Yeah. It was a uh, hairy day out there on the beat, let me tell you. So they then had a whole discussion about the best route to take to get to the Snorlax. Oh, my God. Of course <laughs> they amazing. did. Of course they did. Um, this sounds like it would be in um, one of those shows like Reno 911 yeah, or one of those like yeah. pop yes. parody show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, maybe something like that. Absolutely. And so it gets it just keeps getting better. Um, according to the court's decision, the cops then spent about 20 minutes discussing Pokemon as they drove to different locations <laughs> to catch Pokemon. Uh, <laughs> the court said, quote, on their way to the Snorlax location, Officer Mitchell alerted Officer Lozano that a Tegetic had just popped up and they noted that it was on Crenshaw, just south of 50th. So really tracking them. Yes. Yeah. And to make things even better, this all happened on a really busy Saturday. <laughs> the appellate court noted that LAPD had been working a homicide earlier in the day. So a lot of officers were still tied up with that when the robbery happened. 
And they were like very desperate to get more officers to respond to the robbery, but not these two. They had better things to do. So we already talked about how there was like a dash cam type thing in the car. I mean, I assume that's how they got caught and this all got found out. Yeah. So they the the whole conversation, the whole ordeal was caught on that uh, recording system. And I'm so glad that it was because the quotes <laughs> are incredible. Um, at one point, Mitchell said, holy crap, man, this thing is fighting the crap out of me. And he also said, the guys are going to be so jealous. Can you imagine the whole squad is just really into Pokemon Go? That that's what I gathered from this. These are these are squad car goals. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah. That recording was actually what the cops were fighting in their suit. They said the system had recorded a private conversation that LAPD wasn't permitted to review and couldn't <laughs> use it in disciplinary proceedings against them. But uh both the trial court and the appellate court disagreed. Like, hey, listen, when I'm talking about blastoids like that, that is my own time. <laughs> like you, you have no right. That is proprietary stuff. But uh, doesn't sound like that panned out for him. No, it really did not. But I did also want to mention um, in the decision, they listed off a few other defenses that the cops had raised that didn't work out. But one of them was one of the officers said they weren't aware that Pokemon Go was a game. They thought it was just an app. What's the and difference? Therefore, they weren't playing a game while on duty. Oh, I love that. Oh, I see. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, that'll go over. Absolutely. That'll get you out of trouble for not responding to a robbery. I mean, it is literally about catching things. You know, as you said, Andrew, they were focusing <laughs> on catching the wrong entities. Um, I like the idea of this being fleshed out into like a more sort of extensive cops in the Pokemon universe. Like, they bring Ash into the interrogation room and they say, son, are you setting up gyms at the Galleria or something here? I mean, th th this is ripe for like fanfic and stuff. And I'm all about that. Um, but anyway, this is an insane story. Um, and thank you so much both for writing about it, Haley, and for uh, bringing it to us. Thanks for today's show, guys. We also have a bunch of other people to thank for making this possible today, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our contributing reporters this week, Matthew Perlman, Michelle Cassidy, and Vin Guerreri. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review and five stars wherever you're listening to your podcast right now. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go over to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.